Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. As always, I have a very special guest, but we're going to venture a little outside of Pasadena and into Echo Park. Max Levine is the co-founder and CEO of the Neighborhood Investment Company, or NICO, a company that invests in rent-stabilized multifamily and mixed-use properties in Echo Park through an affiliated public benefit real estate investment trust, or REIT. I first heard of NICO when I was researching real estate companies that were also certified B corporations. These are companies that are required to consider the impact of their decisions on their workers, customers, suppliers, community, and the environment. It involves incorporating this commitment into an entity's actual operating agreement. You've likely seen the B Corporation logo on brands like Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, and New Belgium Brewing. The fact that a REIT operates as a public benefit corporation is the first indication that NICO operates a little differently. As Max references in our conversation, REITs are a structure and not a business strategy. So let's explore both of these as they apply to NICO. A REIT allows people to become shareholders in an entity that purchases real estate with the purpose to earn a regular return, such as a dividend, as well as for their shares to appreciate in value. Simply described, it's an investment. But when I think of REITs, I think of the large publicly traded ones that own billions of dollars worth of assets and can be bought and sold at any time on the open market. Think of First Industrial that owns warehouses or Simon Property that owns shopping malls. The common aspect of all REITs is that they pay dividends from rental income and capital gains. To qualify, REITs must pay out at least 90% of their net earnings to shareholders as dividends, and this structure allows them to pay no corporate taxes on the earnings they pay out. NICO is a public company that is certified with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but you can't trade shares on a stock exchange. While the structure is not unusual, how NICO operates and its purpose are what make it truly unique. NICO is founded to narrow the equity gap between homeowners and renters. If someone buys a home, their investment typically appreciates in value, and therefore they build equity. However, renters have no such equity stake in the property they lease. If the building increases in value, the renter contributes only to the owner's equity appreciation and not their own. NICO's strategy is to offer its renters and investors in and around Echo Park the opportunity to become shareholders, therefore allowing their renters the opportunity to build equity while they also rent. Because of this, NICO has called itself the world's first neighborhood REIT. Currently, NICO has two types of shareholders, locals and non-locals. Local shareholders are restricted to 10 zip codes in and around Echo Park, stretching from Griffith Park to downtown. To incentivize locals to invest, there are exclusive benefits, such as when a shareholder can redeem their net asset value. Locals are able to redeem their shares after only six months, as opposed to waiting two years. As in, once you buy shares, you have to hold them for only six months as a local, as opposed to two years for a non-local. In addition, if you're a non-local investor, you can only redeem at 95% of asset value until year five. However, if you're a local, 
you can redeem at 100% after only six months. Local shareholders also have the ability to weigh in on some of Nico's investment decisions through poll surveys. According to Nico's 2020 data, 56% of their nearly 400 investors are local, and incredibly 32% earn under $50,000 a year. In order to better understand how it works, I created an account with Nico. Their investment dashboard allows you to estimate what your investment could be worth in 10 years, a time horizon considered long-term in the investment industry and consistent with Nico's purpose to build value over time. They offer three estimates for return, low, mid, and ideal. For example, if someone invests $100 today, on the low track, it could be worth $149 in 10 years. On the mid track, it could be worth 200, and on the ideal track, it could be worth 268. These represent internal rates of return, or IRR, of 4.1%, 7.2%, and 10.4%, respectively. These projections are assuming that no dividends are paid out or reinvested. And that is a reasonable assumption at this point, as Nico has not yet turned a profit and has not declared any distributions as of the end of 2020. But it is important to remember that Nico is still a new company, is growing, and was only certified by the SEC in March of 2020, just days after the statewide stay-at-home order. However, in Nico's response to the pandemic, it shows their commitment to supporting their residents. It committed $350,000 toward its rent assistance program, of which over $185,000 was used. This included making security deposits available toward rent, covering rent, and offering each family unit or business a one-time grant of shares. Once Nico begins to earn enough to declare and pay dividends, they expect to do so on a quarterly basis, but it has not established a minimum dividend level and they're not required to pay dividends to shareholders. As a reminder, the estimated returns are just that, and I put a disclaimer at the end of the show to clarify this point. But if Nico can deliver, it shows that while an investor would not make a fortune, they would yield return, and their equity would grow while supporting rent-stabilized apartments. In the midst of a housing crisis, Nico and its strategy is an incredibly creative way to use the REIT structure and capital markets to benefit their residents, their community, and their outside investors. It is a fascinating concept that I hope catches on throughout the country as one solution to address housing and wealth inequality. Personally, I can see it complementing the work of housing nonprofits here in Pasadena. Prior to starting Nico in 2018, Max served as the CFO for Storage Deluxe in New York and graduated from Hobart College with a degree in Economics and Urban Studies. I hope you find this discussion as interesting as I did. So, without further delay, my conversation with Max Levine of Nico. Max, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. So before we discuss Nico, I wanted to talk a little bit about your real estate journey. After studying economics and urban studies at Hobart, you worked in real estate, but in the storage sector. And so I wanted to see if you can maybe share a little bit more about your background and how you got interested in real estate. I grew up in New York City and uh, remember like always sort of being drawn to, you know, the buildings and the built environment and being aware 
uh, of that. And I, I had sort of grown up thinking that I wanted to try and be an architect. And I actually I have a, a, an uncle uh, and an aunt who are architects, and they strongly encouraged me not to become an architect. So I sort of was, was taking that feedback and thinking about, you know, what I could do, you know, that's related to the built environment, related to that, you know, sort of interest in urbanism that, you know, was maybe a bit of a broader career path, nothing against architects. Like I, part of me sort of wishes I was an architect, but that sort of led me into real estate. And I would say, you know, specifically, I think, you know, the experience of, observing, you know, 9-11 and sort of watching, you know, the built environment change in such a dramatic and sudden way, and then sort of being a, a very interested observer in the process of rebuilding, that was really sort of the first time uh, the public design and then uh, the sort of, you know, process around how all that happened, you know, that was my freshman year of college. And I remember just sort of soaking that all in. And that was my first, you know, sort of real sense of, okay, so there's the architect and there's design, there's a developer and there's, there's this process. And I think that that, you know, to a large extent sort of put me on a path of, of wanting to work in, in real estate at the intersection of sort of the built environment and, and business. So I also come from a family of architects. My father is an architect, so I can, I can certainly relate to that. Other than your aunt and uncle, who are some of the early influences that guided your interest in urban studies? You know, I spent a little bit of time as an undergrad at Columbia Graduate School of Architecture. There was sort of an undergraduate program that I was a part of. And one of my professors uh, there had a major impact on me. Her name was uh, Moji Bartolo, and she's uh, since passed, unfortunately. But, but I think about her often, and she had this incredible energy around constantly questioning, constantly questioning, constantly rejecting the idea of a status quo. And, you know, she working with her for a short period of time, it, you know, it shifted something in me, right? And so when I think about influences, you know, hers is is a voice that's in my head that, you know, that that plays often and, and that I hear often. And, and actually in working with her, um, I also worked with Justin Garrett Moore, who has had a long connection with Columbia at the time. He was a TA, uh, now he's on uh, Nico's uh, advisory board, but you know I think about my friendship with Justin, my relationship with him, you know, over the last twenty years, and he's somebody who's had a big, a big influence on me. And then, of course, people, you know, sort of early in, you know, early in uh, in my career, you know, mentors and people who you know sort of learn learn the ropes of the business from. You know, there's a number of those folks, and and you know, I'm sort of eternally grateful to them uh, for spending the time with with me to to really show me around. As a New Yorker, what kind of brought you out to Los Angeles and why did you settle in Echo Park? Uh, I, I moved to Los Angeles really to launch uh, Nico. Uh, my co-founder, John, has been based here for a number of years. And, you know, we were, you know, evaluating different places that we could, you know, start to launch this, this model, you know, at this point about three years ago. And one of the reasons we chose to launch it in Los Angeles was because of how how broad and really sort of how much we like the the sort of features of the rent stabilization program uh, here in the city, and you know that obviously has has manifest a little bit differently, like in light of COVID, in light of what the last uh, year and a half has been. But that was one of the big business rationales for wanting to start the company, launch the company here. Um, I think you know more broadly, like 
my family and I love love living here. We've taken on the city, you know, as our home, and we we're renters. We live in Silver Lake. Um, Nico's office is in Echo Park, and so I'm sort of between Silver Lake, Echo Park, and you know, I think one of the, one of the interesting things that I've observed and that I've experienced over the last year and a half, especially in COVID, is you know our world has sort of shrunk, right? And the amount of time that we're spending really in our neighborhoods are, you know, it's greater, you know, even than it was before. And the sort of geography has shifted in a way that I think is really centered around the neighborhood. And so I, I uh, have gotten to know both Echo Park and Silver Lake through a very different lens over the last year and a half, which I'm, you know, in some ways extremely grateful for. I think that's a great transition to talking about Nico. You know, you've talked on other sh- podcasts and, uh, and other media a lot about the widening gap between owning a home and renting. Owning a home builds equity and wealth, whereas renting does not. And in Los Angeles, as you well know, home ownership is not feasible for a significant amount of people. And therefore, renters are at a disadvantage because of this lack of supply. The idea behind Nico, therefore, is to kind of help narrow this gap. Where did the idea of Nico first come from? And were there any models or case studies that you explored? Because there are some social purpose REITs such as Housing Partner Equity Trust and Community Development Trust? I'll start with sort of the last part of your question, which is, you know, about some of the other REIT models that are out there. And like, you know, one thing that I think is really important to stress is that a REIT is a structure, right? It's not a strategy. And so we were actually much more inspired in the early days by some, you know, some cooperative models, you know, like the Cleveland cooperative model, like that whole sort of world, thinking about the Green Bay Packers and thinking about the the power of community ownership. And so, you know, with all, you know, due respect and like truly we have a lot of respect for some of the other social purpose uh, REITs, you know, their their business model is is quite different than ours. And I think you know, it certainly was helpful to see that there are REITs that, you know, do have sort of a, a social purpose element to them. But for us, like our, our inspiration really came from a place of wanting to uh, address the, the problem of the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, and this idea that, you know, housing has traditionally been, housing and home ownership have traditionally been, you know, a primary way for people and families to build wealth. And, and when that the availability and the accessibility of that is reduced to the extent that it has been. And, you know, the, the sort of classic American dream is not really a viable path for so many people. Like the question is like, well, you know, what comes in its place, right? Like what is the next thing? Right. And, and we're, we're believers here in, in the power of the market. And, you know, there's, you know, sort of, I think in the culture, you know, there's an idea that, you know, that capitalism is, is broken, that capitalism is, you know, problematic. And I would say, like, I agree with that, certainly in terms of the outcomes that it has generated and sort of like where we are at as a society and some of these issues, especially the wealth gap. But the system isn't broken. It's actually working exactly as it's supposed to work, which is it's, it's sort of a, it's not an engineering problem with the system being broken. It's a, it's a values problem. And it's a sort of like, what, what is the system? Like, what are the end goals that that system is trying to advance? Right. To me, it's sort of a design question, right? Like, what are we trying to do with the system? The system isn't broken. It's just optimized for, for the wrong thing. And so I think, you know, what we've tried to do with Nico is, is acknowledge the power of the market to, 
move the world, right? And I think that it's, you know, the market and, and sort of, you know, late stage American capitalism, you know, has moved the market to a place that is incredible if you're wealthy and, you know, really difficult and, and, uh, and challenging and sort of almost insurmountable if you're not, right? And so the question is, how can we use, mar- you know, our, the question for us is how can we use a market-oriented approach that is grounded in, in trying to generate the types of outcomes that people care about when they think about their own community, right, while acknowledging the power of market forces to, to sort of shape the world. And so the answer, like, for us then lies in trying to create a, a product that meets sort of this, this challenge and opportunity set, right? And, and that's really what Nico sort of is trying to do. It's trying to create a new alternative to traditional homeownership that is centered on community, built around values, and that makes local wealth building available to everybody. And so, yes, it's a REIT. And yes, we're, we're the first housing REIT to our knowledge to be organized as a benefit corporation, which means that we have a explicit legal responsibility to balance the financial returns that we generate with the social environmental outcomes that our business generates. But all of that is really in service to trying to meet this huge problem in the housing market around how, what is the mechanism and what is the sort of way that, you know, the average person in a neighborhood like Echo Park can build wealth given that homeownership is out of reach for them. Um, and, and that's the, that's the problem, you know, that we're attempting to solve or at least, you know, materially like make a difference in, uh, through, through Nico, uh, and this, and the structure and all that stuff is really just in service of that mission. Well, I appreciate the explanation that really provides a little bit more context to your purpose and the kind of your structure. So Nico is referred to, as you mentioned, as the first neighborhood REIT, uh, where people can invest in your fund for as little as a hundred dollars. And that money is used to purchase rent stabilized neighborhood, multifamily or mixed use properties. When you launched it, what was the reaction from the neighborhood? The reaction from the neighborhood has been all over the map. I would say the thing that that is sort of universal or close as, as close to universal as you might hope to be in in like this moment in time is that everybody pretty much seems to agree that the current housing system is is deeply broken and needs to change, and there is a broad openness to new solutions that are attempting to do that. Um, and we've seen a lot of incredible support and engagement with this model and, and sort of engagement with us around like a recognition that, that this model is attempting to do that. At the same time, this territory housing, right, because it's so broken and because that relationship between Landlords and tenants, we don't call ourselves a landlord, we don't call our residents tenants, but that relationship between landlords and tenants, and then like more than that, the relationship between, you know, the housing industry and sort of like capital with a with a capital C and, you know, people in neighborhoods like Echo Park, that relationship has been has been a it's been a rough one, you know, if you're if you're not on the side of having access to capital. And, you know, I think that's where the conversation around gentrification, you know, which like we view as sort of a, uh, through a lens of, you know, who's included, who's excluded, who benefits, who's harmed. Right. And so like as a housing provider and as an investment company, 
that is actively engaging in these issues and 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 proposing you know a a news a new solution or at least something that a product that's towards a new solution some of these issues you know we we do often find ourselves in the position of having to or or being asked to sort of answer for the housing industry at large um, which can be uncomfortable but you know it's sort of part of what we've taken on here and there's skepticism there's some distrust and you know there's there's certainly you know some reluctance from from some people within the neighborhood towards you know and if i had to summarize like how i experienced that or how we sort of experienced that i think i would say like you know is a company the right type of entity to be trying to solve this given that companies are perceived to be who has caused it right to a large extent and so i think that's all incredible like that type of passion and that type of you know response to a new solution like this is is totally expected and like frankly like the skepticism of anything that's coming from the housing industry is you know is warranted and that is like that is part of why new solutions are so needed right and so we're we're there for you know we're there for the criticism as much as we're there for the support and like it's actually the conversation around new options that that really is the unifying thing, whether somebody agrees that Nico is the way to do it or not. Like there isn't a ton of disagreement that like things are great and everything's working and therefore like, what do we need a new you know way of doing things for? So, you know, I think overall, like it's been, uh, it's been pretty well received, but you know, we're sort of putting ourselves into a conversation that is like by nature of how broken the system is, like can be an uncomfortable one. And, and that, works for some people and it doesn't work for others. You know, based on your 2020 impact report, 56% of your investors are local. The way Nico is structured, you have two types of shareholders, uh, local and non-local. Uh, local shareholders are restricted to the area around Echo Park. And there are some advantages of being a local, um, hold periods, et cetera. Because Nico is focused around community empowerment, you know, what do you think the reason is or the value proposition for non-locals to invest? That's a great question. So I think, you know, if you just look at it purely from a standpoint of, you know, of an investment product, right? Like what is the, what is the investment product that we are trying to deliver? Right. And so I think one, one thing is that we're trying to create a diversified way to, to invest in a neighborhood, right. And to do so uh, in a way that is seeking to be genuinely helpful and supportive to long-term stakeholders and a, a broader set of outcomes for people in that neighborhood, right? And so I think, A, there's, I think people are so eager for new models that investing, you know, in in Nico and Nico Echo Park, you know, is a way to support that new model, first and foremost. And I think secondly, it's a way to be able to invest in a, in a pretty flexible way in, you know, a great neighborhood like Echo Park and to do so in a way that is seeking to uh, maximize the positive social environmental impact uh, alongside like generating a, a financial return. And so I think for a lot of people that, you know, we're not a developer, but like people sort of think about it, real estate investment companies and developers, like that distinction to most people is not necessarily one that is like they sort of, the terms sort of get used interchangeably. And like the reality is like developers, developer development, like those are now like dirty words. Right. And, and that's a function of like to our to our way of viewing the world. That's a function of how disaligned 
that activity of development has been from long-term stakeholders, right, in neighborhoods where development is happening, like Echo Park. And so I think from a from an investment product standpoint for a non-local investor, I think being able to make investments in a specific neighborhood and, and to be able to do so in a way that, you know, is genuinely seeking to measure success differently and, you know, in alignment with people who've been in that community for a long time, I think that's very attractive. And, and we're hearing, you know, from our non-local investors that that, you know, is, is one of the primary reasons they, you know, choose to invest with us. We're both in real estate professionally. You know, real estate investing is very complicated or, and can be very complicated. One of the amazing things about Nico's investors, 32% earn less than $50,000. So in a way, Nico has really democratized real estate investing. I created an account on Nico's platform to kind of better understand how it works. And the first thing I noticed was that the prospectus was about 180 pages long. The real opportunity for Nico is getting community investors that might not necessarily understand how a REIT works or how real estate investment works. How do you think we can break down some of those barriers to entry and what roles do you think communication and education play in attracting investors so that become more familiar with Nico and your mission? It's a great question. And I would say that that question, I think, summarizes a lot of the, a lot of the challenges with, you know, this model, you know, this model and also like beyond this model, like the sort of gap between, you know, quote unquote investing and then like, you know, most people's level of self-confidence and, and, you know, sort of self-described like knowledge and comfort with quote unquote investing. Right. And so, you know, yeah, like the, the prospectus or the offering circular, you know, is, is about 180 pages. That is, you know, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a trade, right? Because to be a public company and to be able to allow, uh, what the government calls non-accredited investors, what we would call sort of normal non-wealthy people as shareholders, you have to go through that process of creating that document, right? And then like you get through it and people see it and they're like, what, is, <laughs> what does this mean, right? Because it's complicated. Um, and, you know, when you write something to, you know, to sort of work with securities law and, and like how all that works, like, you know, I'm a sophisticated investor and like, you know, it's complicated, like it's still complicated. Right. And so I think what we've tried to do is use communication, you know, and, and by the way, when I say we've tried to do like, we're very much like on this journey of learning how to do it. I'm not saying we know how to do it. Like we're, we're learning that. And we're also listening like very seriously to our stakeholders, you know, who, when they say like, hey, this is hard for me to understand or like, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, part of the benefit of, of having such a community orientation is, you know, it allows us to take a posture of, of listening to people quite differently. And, and, you know, what we're hearing is that people want to, they want to have a real conversation with a human, have questions answered, have it be in, in plain English and you know, um, have that be part of it. And they also want to talk to other people who are part of it and get their take on it. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, the pandemic has, has been uh, super challenging, I think for, you know, for lots of people, I would just say in a very narrow way, like for us are the tools that we had at our disposal for building community were, you know, inherently more limited than we thought they would be like, uh, you know, new year's, 
going into 2020 before, you know, it was clear what 2020 was actually going to be about. Um, and so, you know, I think this next, you know, year will be a, a tremendous opportunity for us to start to reconnect with people in person, do a lot of that sort of trust building in a way that, you know, is not based on looking at things over a screen or through a phone and sort of continue to learn like, you know, what is needed to close that gap, which I, I think is a, I think that's a long-term project. I don't think that's something that there's an easy solution to. And certainly there's an opportunity around financial literacy and education and stuff like that, you know, some of which we've done and some of which, you know, we, we will do um, and plan to do. But I think for me, like I'm most, I'm most excited about exploring paths towards closing that understanding gap that involve people within the community who have a higher level of expertise helping to support and educate and encourage people who are not as confident, you know, in their, you know, sort of quote unquote investment wherewithal. Um, and that sort of trying to mirror how people can learn about this type of investment, how people can get comfortable with it and, and truly understand it in a way that is not sort of a top down, like financial literacy, like which, you know, sort of within the community development space has been tried for a long time. And instead, like think about how people can be teaching each other uh, in partnership with us, like, you know, what this is, how to think about it, and also like how to be active contribute contributors to what it becomes, right? The Nico investment platform is incredibly well designed. So uh, props to you, you and your team for putting that together. Thank you. Wow, that's that's nice. Thank you so much. And it really shows the potential for investors to see kind of their targeted returns. You can plug in both a one-time investment or recurring investments, and an investor can potentially see what their equity would could be worth with three scenarios in, over a ten-year period. And ten-year period is kind of I don't know if that was an arbitrary amount, but that's kind of what I think about in terms of investment horizon. So I think that was a that's a good benchmark. Yeah, and that, and and that's also you know I think I think ten years is. Um... Uh, not not to cut you off mid question, but I think I think that ten years is important, right? Like this is, and and I think it's important both from a standpoint of managing expectations, like you know, like real estate investments should be really boring. You know what I mean? Like if they're good, they should be really boring. And ten years is like ten years is the is the amount of time that you know. I think is sort of the right way to view an investment price. And that's not to say it couldn't be shorter or couldn't be longer, but I think 10 years is a good sort of anchor to like how to think about a real estate investment. And I would say like, you know, part of the challenge, you know, here as we sit here in, in 2021 is, you know, you look at, you know, you looked at, at how people are investing in cryptocurrency. You look at how people are investing through Robinhood. You look at, you know, the GameStop. And like, I think there's a lot, Actually, I think Nico is very connected in a lot of ways to that kind of movement of people sort of like fighting back against a system that they've been excluded from and sort of, you know, talked down to by and all that stuff. But at the same time, like that stuff is high adrenaline, high action, gamified, social, you know, and like I actually view it as a feature, you know, that, uh, you don't have to look at your uh, real estate investments, you know, four times a day to like know what's going on and get your adrenaline hit. 
But, you know, 10 years is different than being on a roller coaster for, for two or three months with investing in Bitcoin or Ethereum or GameStop or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and it's, you know, that this should be a slow thing. And, and like, you know, the reality is, you know, the potential of models like Nico cannot be realized in the very short term because the nature of the problem set is that it's like a slow moving wave that's been moving in one direction for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And these community wealth models like Nico are trying to chip away at that um, in a way that will take time to build and then time to sustain and then time to sort of self-organize into what they need to be, right? But it's not, you know, it's not a meme stock and it's not a cryptocurrency. And and that to me is a, is a feature, but it's, a, it's also a, you know, quite a difference from, you know, how some folks, especially some of the young, some younger folks are sort of being trained to think about what investing is, which is sort of an extension of entertainment and video games and, and some of the other things that are in the culture, you know, around it. And that's not a knock on, on any of that stuff either. Like, I think it's, I think it's valid and I think it's good. And I think, you know, I think it, it is what it is. I'm not trying to sort of like look down on that. Um, I think it's just quite different than, what a neighborhood investment company would need to be and, and certainly than what we're trying to be. Well, I, I love your horizon being 10 years and your point that real estate should be boring really hits home. You know, we're seeing in the last couple of years, we're seeing um, investments where particularly on the industrial side, and that's kind of where I have more expertise. You know, we see companies will buy a property, they'll put a tent in and then and then sell it within two years, three years, and five years is now becoming a long period of time. Whereas 10 should really, like you said, if you're thinking about building long-term wealth and substantial wealth for the community, I think 10 years is the appropriate amount of time. I appreciate that. In response to COVID, Nico established a rent assistance program or RAP for impacted residents or commercial tenants, because you do have a couple of uh, commercial tenants as well. The value applied to this program was about $170,000, which is pretty significant. Now, what was really interesting interesting is that you offered tenants a couple of options, including one, which was a community wealth grant that offers renters a one-time grant of $1,000 of common stock. As of December of 2020, about $16,000 worth of shares were given to residents. Can you talk a little bit more about RAP and how it has impacted your residents? Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, so you know, the, we launched the rent assistance program in it's basically our first act as a public company. Um, so we're qualified by the SEC in in late March of 2020, uh, about a week after the emergency order was put in place here uh, in Los Angeles, and we sort of saw what was happening. and And uh, you know, I've I've used this analogy a couple of times, but it felt a little bit like taking a high performance race car straight off the assembly line and flooring it around the track before you even check the tire pressure. So like, you know, uh, I, I think the, it was a, it was a really big payoff at the time, you know, for me as a, as a co-founder and as the, the leader of Nico, because we'd put so much work into this sort of, you know, theoretical at the time, like pretty theoretical conversation about like, what would it mean to be a neighborhood centric 
real estate company that also is a benefit corp and has those legal responsibilities to balance, you know, financial outcomes with social and environmental outcomes. And one of the big payoffs of all that work, you know, was the ability to, to move so quickly and put that type of a program in place, you know, in, in, in such short amount of time. So we got that program. There's sort of three components of the program. The first part uh, was that we released resident security deposits that we as a housing company, you know, hold, um, which is, which is not our money. It's money that is being held. And so, you know, somebody self-identified as having a being impacted, adversely impacted by COVID. They were having a hard time paying rent. The first thing that we did was release that money to those people to be used towards rent that then did not have to be replenished. Um, the second thing that we did was we made, we, Nico, the sponsor, separate from the, the read itself, um, made a hundred, up to $150,000 of rent assistance grant dollars available so that once somebody used their security deposit towards rent, once that was sort of used up, they could then tap into this grant fund uh, to effectively have their rent paid or partially paid uh, for some period of time. Um, and then the third part was the, the share grant program, which, you know, obviously didn't do anything near term or immediate for somebody, you know, coming back to the 10 year horizon before, but like didn't do something immediate for somebody who's, who's having a hard time paying rent, you know, in, in, uh, the spring or summer of 2020, but does speak to the larger mission of, you know, broadly held local ownership and, and a shared mission around this. And, uh, you know, that, that program, the feedback that we've gotten from our, our residents and commercial tenants was that that program, you know, was a major, major impact for the people who were most affected and that it was something that, you know, I think made a material, materially positive impact on people's uh, well-being during an incredibly stressful and, and sort of uncertain period of time. And I would say there are strong tenant protections that have been in place in Los Angeles since COVID started. There's sort of, you know, mixed, mixed reviews from the public and from the housing sector on like whether that was set up in the right way or not. I would say it's a bit of both. You know, this is going beyond, you know, our program or anything like that, just talking about the regulations and the protections that, that were put in place. Prior to the recent announcement that the state was going to step in and pay back rent, and we'll see how that ends up playing out. It's, it's too early to know, like, what that will actually look like. But, you know, the big concern for us as a benefit corp was not that, you know, we were going to be confronted with a short-term question about, you know, like, whether to you know, be trying to collect rent or like any, anything like that. It was sort of on the back end of like, what does this look like at the time we thought it'd be six months, right? So what does this look like six months later or 12 months, like whatever the case may be, if somebody has been protected and therefore not paying their rent and then suddenly owes $10,000 or $15,000 or $20,000, right? And so it was really like, in, in a way we wanted to reduce the sort of like fear and uncertainty and, you know, despair that comes when you owe a lot of money. Right. And so uh, it was really an attempt to get out, get out of that and, and to, um, you know, obviously support the community and to build trust, but also like I'd say for us as a, you know, as an early stage company that is trying to figure out, you know, who we are and what we're about. And it was something that, you know, really crystallized the team around, 
what is a neighborhood investment company? How do we act? What do we do? What are our values? Are we, are we prepared to like put ourselves and our company on the line for those values? And I think, you know, the answer so far is, has been yes. And that's, you know, that's like, uh, to me, that's a, that's a big impact to this program from a, from an internal, you know, team and company uh, development standpoint. One of the challenges of rent stabilized houses is that because it's below market, it doesn't provide the owner or investor with the extra capital they might need to make necessary improvements. This is particularly why in Los Angeles, we see a large gap in housing stock. It's either old apartments or it's super high-end market rate uh, units. So does the rent stabilized housing model limit your management and reinvestment in the properties at all? No, I, I, I would say that it doesn't. You know, I think one of the things that, like, if you look at what's happened in New York, right, what's happened in New York uh, was that in 20, 2018 or 2019, there was a really broad, you know, new set of, you know, rent stabilization laws that were passed. And what happened there was professional investors, right, and, and long-term owners got used to one set of rules, and then regulation changed, and that limited their ability to uh, raise rents and execute like what was, you know, frankly, like a more aggressive, less tenant-friendly business plan in order to earn returns, right? And we obviously underwrite investments. We underwrite investments with, you know, certain improvements, you know, in scope and with an annual improvement budget there. And like, at the end of the day, like, you know, you don't, you don't have to buy a building if, if the, you know, most, most opportunities for investment that we look at, like don't work right. In a lot of ways, like, you know, probably in real estate and you probably got to look at 20, 20 or 30 deals before you find one that you get really excited about. And, you know, the rent stabilization program here in LA has been here and been active and been pretty stable for a long time. Right. And that was one of the reasons why we chose to launch here and, and we like, and so, no, from our standpoint, it doesn't limit that. I, I would say that, you know, our one of the things that makes our platform different, a little bit different, you know, than, than some people we compete with for these types of assets uh, is that we don't do cash for keys uh, buyouts. Um, we don't do cash for keys and we also don't do, you know, some of the other aggressive, non-tenant friendly things that certain developers and investors, you know, do, do. And so that's all just part of how we underwrite deals uh, and how we underwrite our investments. And, you know, the, the only investment that's a bad investment is one that's different than what you thought it was, right? It, you know, and so we just try to be eyes wide open about, you know, how much repair and maintenance and, and capital improvements these types of assets uh, need. And, and we make sure that that works with respect to our underwriting uh, criteria and that, you know, we have the opportunity like also to be uh, generating social environmental uh, returns, you know, through these um, investments as well. So my final two questions, um, do you think that the model that you've created could be adopted other places, either in Los Angeles or across the country? Thousand percent and, you know, thousand percent and, and we're, you know, also, you know, quite focused on that. Uh, presently, but yes, you know, I think it's it's. I think the model is replicable. It was designed to be replicable, and you know, I think there are, you know, for example, like you referenced our our neighborhood impact report. So the neighborhood impact report 
you know, as a matter of, you know, context is a, that's effectively a report where we are showing how we track our social and environmental results, what results we've achieved and how we will sort of evolve that over time. Right. And so I think like, you know, every neighborhood is not created the same and, and the sort of social and environmental and community challenges and opportunities like are different neighborhood to neighborhood. That's one of the things that makes neighborhoods such a special place, right? Is that difference and that, that sort of thing. And so I think as we expand this model to other markets and as other models like this emerge, I think there will be, you know, sort of a localization of outcomes and, and potentially even features and some other things that are, that are responsive to the needs of that community um, and informed by how that community understands its needs and desires. But I think as sort of a, a structure, like I think, you know, you could take something like Nico Echo Park and, you know, probably replicate 80 to 90% of that sort of structurally, you know, and then have the difference depending on the neighborhood be sort of localized and responsive to, you know, the objectives and desires of that community. And so that's not to just say it's exactly the same everywhere, um, because I think, you know, wanting to de- to de- defer to what makes neighborhoods so unique to begin with, like they have to reflect that and they have to reflect, you know, uh, what people in those communities want for themselves, which is the whole point of this. But yeah, like I think, I think it should be in a lot of places. When you think about the future of the fund, what are your plans for the next year, three years and beyond? We want to grow, we want to grow the holdings of Nico Echo Park, you know, to be a major property owner, you know, in Echo Park, Silver Lake, and the proximate communities where we're focused. And we want that company uh, to, over time, like beyond 10 years, you know, like, let's say, let's go way into the future. Let's say 30 years from now. 30 years from now, I would love to see Nico Echo Park be a very large property owner in, in this group of neighborhoods and for that company to be majority owned by uh, members of this community. I think that's the dream and that's the vision. And, and, you know, to sort of go back to like something I alluded to before, which is the, the Green Bay Packers, you know, the Green Bay Packers are the only major professional sports team in North America that is sort of owned by its community. Right. And that that's a pretty specific ownership model there. And it's not, it's not pure economic ownership either. So I, I want to just like qualify it in that way. But the city of Green Bay on paper should not have an NFL team, right? It's a city of 100,000 people. Should not be an NFL team there on paper. And yet, they've sold out every home game since 1959, okay? They have a 130,000-person waiting list for season tickets. And to our way of viewing the world, that's because when you look at, at you know, Lambeau Field and you look at that organization, that's a stadium full of owners, Right. And so the dream for Nico and the dream for this model is that over a long period of time, these vehicles could become the largest owners of property in the neighborhood and that they could be, you know, substantially or even wholly owned by small dollar local investors in those communities who are sitting at the table as owners, as decision makers, and are directing the power that comes with owning that type of pool of assets, they're using that power to make decisions to the benefit of 
themselves and their community and their kids and the stability of their neighborhood, you know, over time. And, and we really view this as being an opportunity to recenter power around ownership at scale in a territory of a neighborhood where, where these conditions have played out, you know, to the sort of exclusion detriment of everyday people, long-term residents. And, and we view this as a, as a, a mechanism and an opportunity to reset that in a major, major way. And, and that's what we hope, you know, uh, can happen over time. What you and your co-founder, John, have created with Nico is a new approach to affordable housing investment. And I hope that more neighborhoods join you. Thank you so much for being a great part of Echo Park and the surrounding area and being generous with your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really uh, fun. I appreciate you having me on. Again, my many thanks to Max for coming on the show. I would be remiss if I didn't thank Filippo and Justin and Nico for their work putting this conversation together. If you're interested in learning more about Nico, please visit them at mynico.com and follow them on Instagram, Facebook, and Medium. As I've never described investments on the show, and as not to get into trouble, I wanted to make the following disclaimer. The financial projections that Nico shows are estimated projections of performance only, are hypothetical, and are not based on actual investment results of the investments described, and are not guarantees of future results. The projections are calculated based on Nico's experience with similar investments in similar properties, but in no way should be interpreted as a guarantee that past experience will be indicative of future returns. And thank you for listening. I want to give a special shout out to several of my favorites that provide me with their invaluable feedback. So to Aaron, Albert, and Jason, thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you're a business owner or a community leader and want to share your story, please let me know as I'd love to learn more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. And if you have a moment, please rate and review this show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember, stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town. <laughs>